Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Alana Heim grew up in the San Fernando Valley, either just north of L.A. or, or in L.A., depending on how you count it. Her parents were musicians. Her older sisters, Danielle and Esty, were also musicians. Alana got a tambourine when she was four, and pretty soon she was a musician, too. She and her sisters and her parents started a band. Eventually, they got rid of their parents. They started writing their own songs. And not long after that, they had a hit. You know I'm bad at communication. It's the hardest thing for me to do. And it's it. It's the most important part that relationships will go through. And I give it all away. Just so I could say that. But I know, I know, I know, I know that you're going to be okay anyway. You know there's no... The band is, of course, called Heim. They're adored by fans and critics alike. A few years ago, Alana got a call from director Paul Thomas Anderson. He had a part in a new movie that he was working on. It was called Licorice Pizza. He thought Alana might be up for it. And actually, when he told her all this stuff, he kind of undersold it. The character's name was Alana. And also, it was the lead in the movie. And despite never really acting before, Alana Heim took the part. It's earned her a Golden Globe nomination, along with a bunch of other awards. The film is up for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Director at this year's Academy Awards. Licorice Pizza is a sort of meandering coming-of-age movie. It's just as much about its setting, the valley, as it is about its main characters. There's Alana Kane, played by my guest Alana Heim, and Gary Valentine, a 15-year-old child actor played by Cooper Hoffman. Early on in the movie, Gary asks Alana out, and Alana, who's in her early 20s, says no. But she does agree to hang out with him as friends. And so they meet up at the neighborhood stained glass, red check tablecloth Italian restaurant. What are your plans? I don't know. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at Tiny Toes? I hate working at Tiny Toes. You should start your own business. (laughs) What business should I be in? I don't know. What do you like? I don't know. You're an actress. You should be an actress. (laughs) So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid. Song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does, that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent, too. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny. Alana Heim, welcome to Bullseye. Oh, thank you for having me. So when you got a script from a famous movie director, Paul Thomas Anderson, that had your name attached to the title character, to what extent did you realize 
that that meant that maybe you would be in the movie and not just that he had named a character after you? I mean, he talks about it all the time that like it was outrageous of me to not just assume that I was going to be Alana. And that's just like not <laughs> that's not the kind of person that I am. I mean, he was like, of course, you're going to play Alana. Who else would play Alana? But in my mind, you have to like understand like, OK, Paul is I consider him a part of my family. But on the other hand, like he's Paul Thomas Anderson. He's one of the one, if only maybe the greatest director, writer, cinematographer of all time. Like I'm such a big fan of his. So the notion that he would write a part for me in a movie and a lead part for me was just so outrageous to the point where I just could not believe it. And he finds it very funny that I just found it so unbelievable. But after reading the script, I, I he sent it to me, and I read it, and I was obsessed with it. And I think in my mind, I was like, I don't know who else could play this part because she's there's so many stories that I've told him that are mine. But like, I'm never, I'm never going to assume that he's just gonna, you know, say like, there you go. I was like, no, like, I mean, it's a big deal, and and I didn't take it lightly. So I, re- it was very shocking i was like oh i don't know i literally i think the first thing i said was you're crazy for doing this because i've never done this before (laughs) (laughs) i mean it is an unusual situation to be in the situation of being offered a starring role in a movie by one of the great filmmakers but also know that you have not so much been in a supporting role in a movie yeah uh, by a bad filmmaker exactly so to what extent were you talking him into it and to what extent where was he talking you into it i mean it immediately was a yes we were fresh off of filming summer girl It was so fun because it was so DIY, it was so guerrilla style, and we were just having the best time doing it. So having an experience like that and being fresh off this, like, we were, you know, collaborating and running around Los Angeles and, like, taking these articles of clothes off that was, you know, very chill, but... Um, <laughs> it, it, I, saying it on the radio, you have to just just go watch Summer Girl and you'll you'll understand what I'm saying. It was very tasteful. There were no... Nothing bad. But um, we were just so like energized by this experience of just having such a good time working together and that I think when he sent me the script I was like kind of still on this high and really the the conversation was short I read it I was obsessed with it I was I was incredibly jet lagged I was like in London when I got the script and I immediately read it I was obsessed with it I called him and I was like this is amazing I could not it was a page turner I could not turn like I couldn't put it down but I said yes, and then I went to bed and and immediately like closed my eyes and thought, oh, what did I get myself into? Like, what is this? Is this even going to happen? Like, is this is this real? Like, can I even start getting excited about this? Like, am I going to be okay? I mean, all the all the questions that go through your mind of like insecurities and everything, and 
But the thing is, Paul, like, there was not one point in this whole process. I mean, he at least he never told me. Like, there was never a point in the process where he was like, maybe she can't do it. Like, he fully, fully believed in me from the beginning, which was shocking and very nice. Did you? No. Oh, my gosh, no. I mean, I'm a musician. For, I've been a musician since I was four years old. Of course, I did the odd, like, high school plays or middle school plays like nothing nothing crazy i never would you know i growing up in la you go to like school and everyone has a headshot and like that was not my thing like i was like oh no like that's not my parents were not like trying to get me on disney channel or nickelodeon like nothing like that like we were just musicians you know what i mean i've just always considered myself a musician maybe it was fear i don't know that i didn't think i could do it but I just, it somehow got figured out for me. I mean, Paul saw something in me that I very much did not see for myself, and and I didn't realize how much I would love it. And now I'm kind of going through the, like, having to let Alana Kane go. That's, like, the next, the next chapter of my life, which is honestly, like, very sad. Like, I'm going through, like, a very, like, harsh reality of, like, oh, this isn't, like, I'm not going to be her anymore. Because I've already not been her for a while, but, like, I have to let her go. And I've never had that experience before. <laughs> what did you find in the script that you recognized when you read it that first time? That was, like, from my life? Yeah. The first thing I saw was, it, and it eventually got cut, but there was, like, a whole monologue that I that I shot, but it never made it into the movie. But there was, like, a whole monologue about bat mitzvah season where I was, like, talking about how all I wanted to do was make out with somebody at a bat mitzvah and no one wanted to make out with me, which is literally my life. There was like this whole like monologue about how I was like so sad that like the only reason why I wanted a bat mitzvah was so I could kiss somebody and that got cut, which, but that is my life. Was there um, making out going down at, at bar and bat mitzvahs? What? One time I, of well, I, I guess I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't partaking. I wanted to, but not, like it was going on in the valley. It was going all, everyone was making out with each other. Get in this valley lifestyle. <laughs> ah. Seventh grade was like a very, very informative year of my life. Like, no, everyone was making out. No one wanted to make out with me, but that's, I mean, we don't have to go down that road. <laughs> I don't need to tell you my like sadness from seventh grade, but um yeah, no, it was like this whole monologue. And then and then obviously later in the script, there's a part where uh, I bring an atheist to Shabbat dinner, which actually happened. It wasn't Shabbat. It was Passover. And my middle sister had brought a boyfriend that she had been dating for a while that was Jewish, but had become an atheist. But we didn't really know that. He, he kind of kept it quiet. And then when it came to him reading a portion of the Haggadah, he refused. And it was, like, in front of my dad, in front of my whole extended family also. Like, because Passover, everybody gets together and, and reads the Haggadah, which is the story of Passover. But, yeah, it was insanely awkward. And I remember telling Paul that story, and he was, like, crying of laughter. And and, and then when I, when I read that story that was in the script, I was like, I can't imagine anybody else can do this because it's literally from my life. Um, but that was, it was hilarious. There's a line in that scene where your character goes, like, he was almost maybe going to be a boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> he was going to be my boyfriend. I mean, all that, the funniest part about that scene is so me and Cooper Hoffman were pretty much the only people that had full scripts on the whole movie. Like we, I mean, cause obviously we were in a lot of the scenes, but my dad 
who plays my dad in Licorice Beats, my whole family plays my family, didn't get any script, like, period. There was not one line that he saw on written on a piece of paper. Like, it was very much like Paul set up the scene and was like, something's going to happen, just react to whatever happens. And usually the first take was always the best take because, like, my dad was just so shocked. At, like, I mean, I, I had never screamed at my dad in my whole life, especially not like that. Like, maybe I would do, like, the occasional, like, you don't understand, dad. You don't understand me. But nothing like I'm screaming at you and I'm, like, in your face and, like, going for it. But I thought that it was so funny because my dad, <laughs> my dad for the first couple of takes was like, all right, okay, this is funny, and, like, obviously reacted, but after, like, seven takes, I would, like, go to hug him, and he was, like, visibly mad. Like, he actually, <laughs> he actually, like, did not want to hug me. He didn't want to be around me. He was, like, over me screaming at him, and he, would. I mean, the scene is, like, he has to, you know, like, kind of, he kind of lets me do my thing. Like, he he can't really retaliate the way that he wanted to, um, but I thought that, that was so funny that, like, I, I'll have, I have a vivid memory of, like, one of the last takes I like wanted to go hug him and he kind of like backed away a little bit and I was like dad this is not real like <laughs> we have to remember this is not real um but he was so great he my looks dad like so he's funny. about to like Krav Maga you oh a hundred percent my dad I think that my dad is one of the funniest people on this planet I feel like everyone kind of thinks that about their dad but my dad was so funny and was such a good sport filming this and like not having a script and not knowing what was going on he really did kill it <laughs> let's hear a little bit uh, of that scene why would you do that why would you do that I, he was maybe gonna be my boyfriend listen young lady you don't bring this idiot to shabbat dinner here listen dad he's an atheist and an actor and he's famous but he's jewish he was gonna take me out of here Essie. don't you even look at me don't you even look at me you're always oh, looking at me I what are you doing even say anything what are you doing what are you thinking huh i'm Essie. i work for mom and dad i'm perfect i'm a real estate agent alana doesn't have her life together alana brings home stupid boyfriends all the time i mean i knew it I knew that was what you were thinking. You're always thinking things, you thinker. You thinker. You think things. So funny. <laughs> Every take that we did of that, because that was all improv. There was no, that's, that scene wasn't really scripted. And every time we did that scene, I, we all did something different. So it was just so, it was chaos. It was pure chaos. <laughs> I mean, you, before we were coming into the studio, not to spill too many beans but you you left your phone on the sofa outside i did in case in case your mom called because if if your mom called and you didn't answer then your dad would call oh yeah and then then they would go through the sisters and then it would just be like a funnel then if if i don't pick up both my parents and my parents will call esty and then if esty esty then will call me and then if because they think like oh maybe she doesn't want to pick up because we're not one of her siblings or whatever and then Essie will call me. And then if Essie can't get a hold of me, then she'll report back to my my parents. And then if that if it gets to that stage, then it's like something's wrong. And then it's like all hands on deck. We got to find Alana. And I'm like, you guys, I'm literally just living and working. <laughs> like, please. And it's always like the most inopportune, like the worst time. It's always the worst timing where I'm like, I literally physically can't call them back. And then I know that my mom is like sitting by the phone, worrying, like crying, like, where is my daughter? I'm like, I just woke up. Like, everyone calm down. So much more with Alana Heim still to come. After the break, we'll talk more about the valley. Dupars, the Northridge earthquake. 818 till I die. Don't miss it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Alana Heim. She is the guitarist and a singer for the band Heim, who were nominated for Album of the Year at last year's Grammys. She's also the star of the new movie Licorice Pizza, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Licorice Pizza is nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay at this year's Academy Awards. And if you ask me, Alana is the best part of the whole thing. Let's get back into our conversation. I mean, it's pretty wild to think that you are going through these experiences of, you know, being in a film by a, a, a great American filmmaker and also like, oh, yeah, we're on the road with Taylor Swift or whatever, <laughs> uh, but also while still within your like family of origin. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean, like you, you're touring with your sisters in the band. Oh, your, yeah. Your mom is calling you and you're like, I'm 28. <laughs> I'm 30 now. And I'm the young one. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's totally my family. We have no boundaries. Like I've I always like when people are like, don't you like set boundaries with your family? I'm like, boundaries? You think I can set boundaries with my family? Like, no, we're not a boundaries family. But I love that. I mean, we've always been so close. I started a band with my parents when I was four years old. Like we were a, we were like the Partridge family. And I love my parents. I mean, my phone's out there, but I would show you like the literally the wallpaper of my phone is my parents on their wedding day. Like every time I pick up my phone, I see a photo of my parents. So even though we're a little crazy, we're still great. I love them. What were you doing in the band when you were four years old? I could only play percussion because I couldn't, you know, lift an instrument, obviously. But my dad um, had shown me Sheila. Oh, it was a marching band. <laughs> no, no, no. It was a. It was. We were. We just played covers. I mean, my mom in the seventies. Also, my my mom always loved playing guitar. Like she grew up playing guitar. She, you know, wanted to be a singer, and but her parents were not supportive. But she played guitar and she, like, her claim to fame was she won the gong show in the 70s. She, like, got on twice. She lost once, didn't get gonged, but she lost to a father-son pop and lock crew, which, I mean, given, obviously, yes. my mom's not good enough, like, for that. Like, she, they should have won. Um, but then I guess Chuck Barris, like, loved my mom so much that he, like, invited her back to do just the same exact thing. And she won. And we have a gong in my house, which is so crazy. Like, we wow. have her trophy that says, like, Donna Rose gong show winner, um, which is amazing. And my dad always played drums. And so, like, as I mean, it's like a funny origin. It sounds like a movie. It's like a very funny origin story. But my dad apparently had a dream that he, like, violently woke up from and like woke up my mom and was like I had a dream that we had a band with the kids that like we played music with the kids and not in like a professional way like there was never like dream we were called Rockenheim just you know rockin <laughs> with an apostrophe Rockenheim mm -hmm. no G you already had a plan a map to stardom yeah I don't know who like that honestly I should actually ask who came up with the name Rockenheim I'm sure it was my mom 
It, that sounds like <laughs> something my mom would do. But it was, like, very much just, like, our version of, like, a family activity. Like, we weren't, like, a camping family or, like, a I don't know what other families do. <laughs> I don't know, like, what activities families do. But, like, that was, like, our version of, like, camping. It was, like, on the weekends we would just, like, play covers together. And, like, we would it was never for money. Like, we did, like, charity events and, like, country fairs and, like, street fairs. Like, we played the Sherman Oaks Street Fair every year. We played the St. Francis de Sales Fair every year. Um, but my dad had shown me Sheila E at like a very young age and she plays Timbales and I was so obsessed with Sheila E growing up. I loved Prince. We all, we were like a very big Prince Sheila E family and I just thought she looked so cool. And so my first instrument was Timbales and then obviously like, give me a maraca, give me a tambourine. Like I, it was like very low stakes. But then when I got old enough to actually be able to play an instrument, I started on piano and then I got jealous of both my siblings because Esty was playing bass and Danielle was playing a, a guitar. And I just thought they looked so cool. So I was like, I want to play guitar. And so I moved over to guitar. And then I kind of wish now that I stayed on piano because now I love it so much. And I kind of wish that I would have just stuck with it because I probably would have been really good by now. But um, I kind of just play everything under the sun in high. I'm like, there's not. If I had two extra hands, I would be the most incredible. It would just I would, could do anything. First of all, I am also, I love Sheila E. Sheila oh, E, go on, Sheila e, go on Bullseye. If you're listening, please, we've invited her before. Yeah. Never managed to book her. You're very welcome on Bullseye, <laughs> yes, Sheila E. Yes, please. And can I be here when that happens? You're invited. Um, but uh, did you ever get tempted to have one of those, like, you know how Sheila E, especially, I mean, I've, I've seen videos of her doing this relatively recently on, on YouTube. Like, she's still doing it. She still, still looks great, too. I know. Um <laughs> But like these these giant standing kits that she's got oh, with seventy five drums and twenty four different percussion instruments, oh, yeah. all arrayed so that she can play them while she's singing and 100%. dancing. Hundred percent. No, Haim does like on our last tour. We had like a version of it. Like it's obviously not as cool as Sheila E's setup because like she obviously has like her own symbols and her own branded symbols, and just like is the f- coolest. Sorry if I can't swear. Um, it's okay. It was about <laughs> Sheila E. <laughs> I mean, I only swear for her, but um, no, we literally made a setup because we wanted it to be like that. Like we had a setup like with like these like crazy bars that had all these different instruments, but we called it Bongotron because <laughs> <laughs> there was just so many different things. Like any type of drum was like on that thing. It was so crazy. But yeah, no, she's the greatest. And to see a woman that could, you know, is like a badass musician was like very inspiring for me growing up. But yeah, Rockenheim we played as Rockenheim until I was like 16 and then when I was 16 me and my siblings decided like maybe we should try to be a band together because like we've been playing with each other for so long like we know exactly how to you know work together and we were like but maybe we should like try to write a song because like Rockenheim never did original songs like we weren't like sitting like being like mom what do you think about this line like it was all covers it was like Billy Joel Van Morrison Tina Turner we never did Prince because Prince was like so hard you like it's so hard to do a Prince cover and we were like children um a lot of Beatles a lot of Rolling Stones like Santana I think I said that but I'm not sure but um but when we started you know we started writing our own songs and and kind of went from there and and we played every venue under the sun for um, i think 7 years and no one ever wanted to sign us in America and we put out an EP the Forever EP which is actually what led Paul to us he had heard Forever on the radio and that's how he kind of got connected to us hey. 
this EP and still no one wanted to sign us no one cared and so we heard that there was something happening in the UK and we just went to the UK and then got signed there and just stayed there um when you were working up a set with your parents and uh-huh. you're like sisters are teens and you're nine or whatever yeah. like it does like one of your older sisters come in and be like I want to play this I want to play the cranberries <laughs> totally and then and then your mom your your mom okay, like, is what like, are you talking about um she's just like people like these other things totally no there was definitely a point where like I mean me Essie and Danielle would like learn songs together that like we would hear on the radio I mean that's like that's how we learned how to play instruments I and mean, we we had lessons but like to learn like songs that we were learning on the radio we would like actually record them on a tape deck on the radio and like go try to like figure it out by ear and then try to write out because it's also before you know, before the internet before the internet you had to like listen to a song and write down the lyrics like you couldn't just go to like lyrics.com right so half of our lyrics were wrong obviously because the like there's no way you could get everything right and for our audience at home when you said lyrics.com you showed how, <laughs> how you would type that yes, into a keyboard lyrics.com yeah. enter um but i remember sd was like i want to play celebrity skin by hole and i was like that's so cool oh my god i mean it's really cool she also wanted to play like corn and like my sister was super into like new metal like she was definitely like corn and the offspring <laughs> like real things she are was like jamming on k-rock she totally was she was so like all she wanted to do was go to weenie roast like that was like her jam the festival concert put on by k-rock yes like that was like her like thing like i remember we got the like weenie roast like commemorate she never got to go because like my parents were like you're not going to a concert um, by yourself missus we have a concert that night <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> No, but yeah, there was definitely a point where she wanted to like play her songs that she loved, but like we weren't playing not no disrespect to classical music. Like I'm obsessed with classical music. I love it, but we were playing like songs that were like cool. They were like from the 70s and they were like great songs that like I still love to this day. So like wasn't like we were playing boring songs. Like we were playing like sick songs, but of course, yeah, no, I'm sure SD. I remember whole celebrity skin. That was like a big one. <laughs> I can understand. I mean, that is like a generational touchstone song it yeah. is a super cool song it's the coolest song are and you it's kidding a pretty different and kind we were of girls thing. like we wanted to like i mean we looked up to them you know like that was it was they were the coolest they still are the coolest even at the level of success that the band is at i don't think the few you could say the future is promised um just by the virtue of the entertainment industry right like do you ever think like, oh my gosh, my life has been on rails. Like I've been doing this since I was four years old. What would happen if I weren't doing this? Oh, I think about it all the time. I mean, just even my siblings, because like it is kind of like weird that like all of us loved music so much that like at such a young age, like what if us was like, what if one of us was just like really good at science, like mm-hmm. <laughs> or like really good at like chemistry and like wanted to be like a doctor or something like that. But yeah, no, I mean, like, I feel like 
I was always meant to do something in music. If if Haim didn't work out, I probably would be working in music in some capacity, whether it be like producing or um, songwriting or something like that. But it was always, it was my first love. And I will always, I mean, it's like hard to give up your first love. It's like such, it's like embedded in my veins. Like it just, it, it was always meant to be this way. Being a grown-up and like you are the last of your siblings to become a full-on grown-up because you're the youngest, <laughs> Am I a right? Grown-up? <laughs> yeah. Um being a grown-up, is it like is it hard to figure out what it means to be an adult when your life remains so close to the things that you were when you were a child that it is so, you know, outside of your bat mitzvah, maybe. <laughs> Like, I mean, so it's unmarked funny. by. I don't know. I mean, I've always felt very young at heart, and I feel like I'm very much like my mother in that way. Like my mom is just still like I look at her sometimes, and and I feel like she's. I, I mean, I, I've said this story before, but like it was a very like poignant story in my life that I feel like is going to be a core memory. <laughs> like if we're talking in like a, a Inside Out terms, the Pixar movie. But like a, this core memory, like I when the night before I turned 30, I talked to my mom and I was like, mom, can you believe that I'm 30? Because that's like a big deal for my parents, too. I mean, again, like it's basically saying like our, our ba- the baby of the family is grown up, even though I don't feel that way. But I was like, mom, isn't it crazy that I'm turning 30? And she was like, it's insane. And I was like, mom, I still feel like I'm 13. And she literally just paused for a second and went, me too. I was like, you still feel like you're 13, mom? She's like, yeah, I still feel like I'm 13. And I just like, it never has changed. And it like made me feel like so comforted that like, you never fully grow up. Like we're all just like putting on this costume of being a a grown up. Like you never, like I, I feel like I'm wearing a costume. Like even saying, when you said like you're a grown up, I was like, I am, I'm a grown up. Like I still feel like, I mean, obviously like now I have to pay bills and stuff. Like I'm not on the family plan anymore, which was a big deal. (laughs) I'm not on the phone family plan. I have to pay for, I mean, obviously, but I'm 30. I have to pay my bills. But that's like the only thing that like really signified me growing up is me like being like, oh, shit, I got to pay for everything. <laughs> like, but like, I still feel like I'm 13. And I don't think that that'll ever change because it hasn't changed yet. I mean, I'm 30 and I still feel like I'm going to a bat mitzvah this weekend. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully the love of my life uh, that refuses to, you know, date me uh, will, you know, turn the corner and want to date me. <laughs> Who would you have liked to have made out with at a bat mitzvah? Oh, my God. Like anyone. Like literally <laughs> anyone. I was like such a late bloomer in that sense. Like I don't know what it was about me that like no dude. I mean, we all have to think about seventh grade. Like you finally have hormones. Like everything is going crazy. It's literally like Big Mouth. Like when I watch Big Mouth, I'm like trigger. Like that was literally me. Like all these like hormone monsters were like driving me nuts. Um, but... Yeah, no, I would I would have made out with anybody and no one wanted to make out with me. So I had to wait till I was in high school to like finally kiss someone, which is in the valley. I don't know what was going on, but like everyone like got their first kiss in like sixth grade and I had to wait until like ninth grade. <laughs> that's like a that's a valley thing. I guess no, I mean I just I just lived it. Being in middle school was like everyone had boyfriends and everyone was like making out and I was just like, My time will come soon. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> now you're saying it like you were like gazing into the stars it's out true. your bedroom window. Like, like 
If you wish upon a star, please make out with me, please. Like, that's really what it was. And it hasn't changed. I mean, I still feel like, again, I still feel like I'm in seventh grade. So <laughs> We'll wrap up with Alana Haim in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Um, hi, I'm looking for a movie. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, there's that new foreign film with the time travel. There's an amazing documentary about queer history on streaming. Have I told you about this classic where giant robots fight? Or there's that one that most critics hated, but I thought was actually pretty good. Ooh, I know. The one with the huge car chase, and then there's that scene where... <laughs> the, the car, car jumps, jumps over, over the submarine. submarine. Wow, who are you eclectic movie experts? Well, I'm Ify Wadiwe. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Alonzo Duraldi. And together, we host the movie podcast Maximum film new episodes every week on maximumfun.org and you actually just walked into our recording booth oh weird sorry i thought this was a video store you seem like a lady with a lot of problems i'm jesse thorne you're listening to bullseye my guest is alana heim she's one of the three members of the band heim she's also the star of the new movie licorice pizza let me ask you this thing about your mom because i was reading about your mom was paul thomas anderson's elementary school art teacher. Mm -hmm. As I heard you tell the story, you didn't realize that when you first, he didn't realize that when you first met him. He had no idea. But you knew, and the way that you, the, the thing that you said your mother would say when one of his movies was being discussed on television or whatever, uh, was very particular to me, which was, (laughs) uh, it was, she said, that's that's Paul. He was my student. I made him creative. Yeah. She got so mad at me when I said that because she was like, oh, Paul, I, you know, you're paraphrasing when I say like, I always knew that Paul was creative. Paul was one of my my mother's like favorite students because he would always never listen to her, which was like my mom's dream like my mom like loved when students would like be so creative that they like needed to make art like they knew exactly what kind of art they wanted to make so like they my mom would be doing my mom was very into like recycled art she would always love to take newspapers and make them paper mache into like some sort of like flower arrangement or something like she was very into like my mom was like a hippie she like loved recycling like old bicycle tires and making them into stamps it was like i mean the school loved it because she was like i don't need any money i don't need any budget i'm just gonna recycle things but she would always say that like paul there would be like some sort of like thing happening and paul would just kind of do his own thing and would run around the class and like for someone like my mom who's like a baby angel like it's so funny that she like loved that part of a child like any other teacher would be like pulling their hair out my mom was just like yes art create i mean she was the coolest she had like always play guitar in class she brought her record player into class and would let the students like listen to records that she had and she because she was young i mean she was like in her early 20s when she was like an art teacher to like all these kids so like she felt like a kid too she's like what would i want an art teacher to be like for me and it was like run free like do whatever you feel me saying that, you know, she said that I created his creativity. I mean, maybe I was paraphrasing just a little bit, but she did. <laughs> but she did always say, like, growing up, like, whenever his movies would be on TV, she'd be like, I taught him. And, like, we all believed her, obviously. I don't think that, like, my mom's a liar. But also I was like, but are you sure, mom? Like, are you sure you po- taught PTA? Like, that's, like, a big deal. And it turns out, you know, she was Miss Rose, though. She hadn't even met my dad. So she wasn't Miss Hyam. So that's why he didn't know 
that we were Miss Rose's daughters. Also, her name is Miss Rose. Like, come on. It's like too perfect for an art teacher. Miss Rose? Like, it's insane. So we were uh, laughing before the show about um, the late uh, and well-remembered comedian Brody Stevens, who would often scream 818 Valley Till I Die on Mm -hmm. stage. (laughs) Um, and this is such a Valley movie, but I don't think people have all that much idea of what the Valley is. Outside. Yeah. In fact, I've lived in Los Angeles for 15 years and outside of my old therapist's office in Toluca Lake, I don't have a strong understanding it's of true. the Valley. There's a lot of therapists in the Valley. Yeah. I wonder why. I mean, it's like therapists and like the porn industry were like a big deal in the Valley. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's funny, like with this movie coming out, like a lot of people are like, I want to visit the Valley. And I'm like, I feel bad because I'm like, I mean, Paul really painted such a beautiful picture of the valley, and it's, like, not that great. I mean, I love it. I love the valley. I mean, talk about 818 till I die. I mean, I live, breathe, and die for the valley because it's where I'm from. Um, But it was really just a suburb. It was, like, a suburb, and now it's, like, kind of taken on a whole life of its own. I mean, there's, like, all of my favorite places have now turned into, you know, other places that make me sad. There was a diner called Dupar's that was, like, my heart and soul. Like, it was open late. Me and my siblings would go there every weekend when we were, like, done, you know, going to a venue, like, to see a band. And, like, you would get pancakes at, like, 3 in the morning and it was the best. And now it's a Sephora. <laughs> now it's fully a Sephora. Like, the facade of the building is is still the same. They haven't even changed the sign. They just, like, literally put Sephora on top of this Dupar sign that was, like, so heartbreaking. But I loved the Valley. I mean, it was a great place to grow up because Valley kids, like, always stuck together and— even growing up, like, going to a party, like, on the east side or something, like, if you heard that someone was from the Valley, you immediately gravitated towards them, and you knew that, like, you kind of grew up. You went to the same spots. You went to the same restaurants. You're, usually your parents are a lot of like, a lot alike. <laughs> but it was just a great place to grow up, and unfortunately, it got a bad rep, I think, in the 80s with the Valley Girl stereotype. But, you know, that I think the Valley Girl kind of died in the 80s. When when the Northridge earthquake happened, the 94 earthquake, I feel like the Valley Girl kind of died. But I still am a very, very much a Valley Girl. Do you remember that earthquake? Oh, yeah. I was four. I actually, apparently I saved my family because I was like a baby and I needed like food or like a bottle or something. <laughs> Whatever it is that babies food. need. <laughs> I think I was like maybe three or something. And I needed a bottle. And so, like, my mom had woken up to, like, go get me a bottle, like, an hour before the earthquake. And so, like, my parents were kind of, like, not sleeping but not awake, like, kind of in this half zone of, like, I was in the bed with them. I mean, I don't remember the actual earthquake, but apparently it was insane. Like, it was terrifying. And it lasted a really long time. Like, that's the thing about earthquakes that's so weird is, like, I've been, I mean, knock on wood, lucky enough where it only lasts, like, a matter of seconds like it's not really it doesn't really like go f- to a minute and i think that the northridge earthquake went a lo- went on for a very long time and there were a lot of crazy aftershocks but yeah no because i cried my dad was like kind of like ready to go <laughs> grabbed essie in one arm danielle in the other arm like ran outside um and my mom always said that the one memory that she has of the 94 earthquake is like crystal being i mean my mom was like kind of like the the historian of her family and got all of like her great grandparents like crystal and she said like i would just hear like glass breaking of like all these family heirlooms that i had kept and they were just gone (laughs) and yeah and our house got you know pretty messed up but yeah crazy 94 earthquake (laughs) 
So now that you have been, and you're wonderful in this movie, you really are wonderful in this movie, but now that you've been the star of a movie with one of America's uh, great f- film directors, would you be scared to be in a regular movie or do you feel ready to be? Like if if you got a call to say like, we need fifth fifth on the bill in a new Transformers movie. <laughs> Would you be ready to do not like would I'm not asking you for a value judgment of would you want to do no, it. I'm I saying mean, would you be okay with it? Would you could you do it with your heart? I mean would you feel secure? <laughs> would I feel secure about doing I mean the thing is is like for me and and it goes in, it comes from high. I mean, I would only do something that that I love because how we make records, I mean, it's such a stifling process making a record because you make this thing that you love so much and then you put it on the universe and then like you, it has to be judged and and it's terrifying. But I, I think very early on, we kind of made the decision of like, you cannot listen to what people say. Like if you love it and, and, and it's truthfully yours and you took no advice from outside people. I mean, we take advice from Paul. He's the only person that we take advice from. If it's truly yours, then no matter if it's good or bad, you'll love it because it was your decision. And it was all about you. When it comes to this new chapter of my life of working with somebody else, maybe, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine working with someone that's not Paul because our working relationship was just so, he was so hands-on with me and so, like, ever, checking in on me and making sure that I was, like, good. And he was anything, any type of idea that I had, he would welcome. Like, there was no bad ideas if I could make him laugh, it would stay in. And that's like, what a what a beautiful way to work. Like, there, I went to work every day with bells on. I woke up at 5 a.m. every day and, like, did my hair and makeup and went to set. And it was so fun. And I think that's the beautiful thing about Paul is that, like, he really is an incredible director. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do it without him. But I do know that I can't work with him forever. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's, like, the sad part about it is. But I haven't really thought about what I'm going to do next or if I'm going to do it. I mean, I would love to act again. It was so fun and I and I loved it so much and it was such a great experience, but there's nothing in the pipeline other than tour. I'm going on tour, which is my, I'm going back to my first love. Did you keep any of these sick fits that you rocked in the movie? Dude, I tried. Maybe the weird baby doll dress I from tried, the audition. <laughs> dude, I tried, dude. No, I couldn't keep anything. A lot of it was rented, so I couldn't keep it. I really was like, I'll pay. I want to just have these bell bottoms for the rest of my life. I did get, there's like in one scene when I'm calling one of my various boyfriends in, in the movie called Brian, um, where I'm calling him in the bathroom and I'm wearing this blue robe. Um, and I'm asking him if if he needs help with Joel Wax. I got to keep that robe. <laughs> and I got to keep, I stole this ring that I don't let go of. I like stole the ring. I was like, I'm keeping this ring. It was like the ring that, it was one of the first things that I chose to wear for the character. It's like my favorite thing can, that I own. Can I you never describe what it is? It's like, a, it's honestly like costume jewelry. It makes my, it makes my, my finger black like it's like not it's not an expensive ring and it like it looks like it came out of like a gumball machine but it has like this piece of like ceramic in it that i i when i looked at it i thought that it was really interesting i was like huh, i've never really seen that before and it kind of felt like she would wear something like that and i just it just stuck and then i just it was kind of thing where i put it on and i think i forgot about it and then every day i would just wear it and then it was just like a part of part of the fit <laughs> And this moon necklace? This moon necklace I got um, 
after our first album. And and I don't mean to name drop, but Stevie Nicks gave it to me, which was like the, one of the biggest deals. I think the biggest deal of my life. Because Fleetwood Mac, I mean, it's no secret that Haim was heavily influenced by Fleetwood Mac. I mean, from the time that I was four and then to, from the time that we started Haim. And we got to meet her and she was, she's been such an incredible, you know, mentor to all three of my siblings. And the first time I met her, she gave all three of us moon ne- moon necklaces because we are sisters on the moon. <laughs> Do you like text her questions? <laughs> I don't text her questions. We see her from time to time. I mean, with COVID, it's n- obviously we can't see her as much as we want to, but um, we've hung out quite a number of times. And every time we hang out, it's like she just has the most incredible stories and and is so supportive and like loves our music so much. And every time we come out with an album, like she always like listens to it and sends us videos of like what her favorite songs are on the albums. And it's like, you're Stevie Nicks, like you're a God, like you're one of my biggest influences in my life. It's very mind blowing. It's like very mind blowing and like very much like, Oh my God, (laughs) how is this my life? (laughs) It's crazy. Well, if we're lucky, we'll get this Sheila E. thing set Dude, up. Dude, I will be here. I will get. I will get you guys coffees. I will. <laughs> I'll just sit in the other room. Like you won't even know that I'm here. Like I just want to like be around her aura. Like she's just like the coolest. She is the coolest. Well, thanks for taking the time to come in. It was it was nice to get to talk to you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This is so fun. And congratulations on your performance in this movie. It's it's really something special. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Alana Haim. If you haven't seen her in Licorice Pizza, she is great in it. That movie is still playing in theaters now, and it's a lot of fun. Look, we don't have the kind of office where we ask guests for pictures, but it just so happens that Max Fun production fellow Valerie Moffat is a Haim superfan, so we made sure that Alana took a picture with her. Uh, thanks to Valerie for helping us out on the Haim end of this segment. Um, we asked her to pick a song from the band for us to go out on. This is Honey and I. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fund in and around greater Los Angeles, California. At my house, I just put together a swing set. It's actually not a set. It's one swing. And it's not the kind with a seat. It sort of looks like a UFO. Anyway, kids don't seem to use it that much. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer, Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help booking from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. If you need some chill beats to study to or whatever, you can actually download music from Bullseye on Bandcamp. It's called Target Practice, interstitial music from NPR's Bullseye, and it's pay what you want. So, uh, you know, whether you just want to drop some bars on an instrumental or hang out at your house and feel chill, 
go grab that DJW music. Dan's a good dude. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that song. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook as well. You can find us there. Uh, You can give us a follow. Hear all our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.